So if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we continue our study in 1 Corinthians. We're more than halfway through, which is pretty amazing, Um, but I pray that it has been beneficial to you and that um, we are learning and being uh, taught well of what God would have for us. So let's pray and we will look to see what um, what God might have for us this day. Our Father, your word is truth. And so we come before you, Lord God, and we anticipate that you will speak to us through the word of your inspired apostle Paul, that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us great understanding and wisdom. I pray, Father God, that I would be faithful to the text, to say what it says and no more, to say what it says and no less, to provide meaningful and good application to our lives that we might be able to live out your will in this corrupted culture in which we live So be merciful to us this day, Lord God. Humble us and let us, if if sin is revealed in our lives, I pray that we would confess it. If there are things that that we seem to be doing well and that we would rejoice that you have been faithful in such things. So guide us now, open our hearts by your spirit and lead us to your truth for Christ's sake. Amen. So one of the questions we want to begin with this morning is how do Christians interact with pagan religions and practices that are ubiquitous to our society? They are common. They are everywhere. And can we practice our faith and still participate in pagan life outside of Sunday morning? You might think, well, I don't know. I don't have any... There aren't... I don't live in a pagan culture. Oh, we do. And we are influenced by it every single day. The worldviews that are around us are not Christians. They're not Christian. Just let me give you a, a few examples. In movies, Moana, an animated film, is has a complete and utter pagan worldview. And yet we watch, we let our kids watch these things. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying, how should we as Christians who are influenced by pagan worldviews, how do we live? It's all around us. Star Wars, Avatar, these are all promoting a pagan worldview. In fact, Simone and I I don't know, it was a while back. I don't exactly remember when. But we are watching a history of sitcoms. And perhaps the father, one of the most well-known sitcom producers, is Norman Lear. And Norman Lear was very clear. He says, I have an agenda. I want to promote certain things. Now, some of the things he wanted to promote are good. But he had a very clear, distinct objective and a worldview that he promoted in his sitcoms. And you and I, all of us, have been influenced, even if you've never seen one of his sitcoms, because 
they, that worldview has so impacted our culture around us, we, at least in a secondary way, have been influenced, even if you've never seen one of his sitcoms, and you probably, we probably all have. And this is then what Paul is, has been addressing from chapter 8, verse 1 through 11, verse 1, is this idea, how do believers interact with the pagan religions and practices that are so common in culture. They were, Paul was dealing with the issue of food sacrificed to idols. And you and I say, well, I, I don't ever have an issue with that. I've never really been tempted in that way. But idol food was, was ubiquitous. If you were to have a meal, the food, if you were eating meat, it had probably been offered to an idol. Restaurants, you probably the temple would have been a restaurant. That's where you would have had your meal. That's where you would have eaten if you were, uh, for a a contemporary work, a union worker. You would have gone to your union meeting and you would have probably had a meal and that meal, the meat anyways, would have been sacrificed to an idol. So, this is where we've been. Paul has been speaking about the weak who cannot separate their liberty in Christ from their pagan past, namely in the eating of idle food. And Paul demonstrates that he practices what he preaches. He has called the Corinthians to lay down your Christian freedom, lay down your rights for the upbuilding of others and that the gospel might not be hindered. And Paul says, listen, I practice what I preach. I've laid aside my own Christian liberties. In in Paul's case, he's saying, um, I laid aside my right to receive a compensation for my work in ministry. I've laid that aside that there would be no hindrance to the gospel. In other words, I practice what I preach. I lay aside my liberties. I lay aside my rights so that the gospel would not be hindered. And then last week we saw Paul writes and encourages the Christians. He said, listen, God has called you to run this race. He did not call you to be a spectator and to sit in the stands. He called you to run. Runners run. Fighters fight. Run and fight. And fight in such a way, run in such a way that you might win. Do not run foolishly that will risk you dropping out. Run to win. So that's where we've been today. We are going to continue on in that theme. In fact, we're going to continue on this theme and all the way through, uh, through chapter 10 up to uh, chapter 11, verse 1. And now what's going to happen today by way of preview is that Paul is going to lean upon the Scriptures um, to give weight to his p- point. He had used an athletic metaphor to make his point. Today, he's going to bolster his position by providing a scriptural support. Namely, he's going to go back into Israel's history. Um, he's going to go back into redemptive history and show how God's people have adopted pagan culture and it brought about detrimental and devastating effects. So he's going to use redemptive history, just a, a quick reminder, define some terms, and this is, so when we talk about redemptive history, we remember that the Bible is history. There's a, 
It is an accurate history, but it is a very narrow history. It is very limited in that it talks not about everything that the Jewish people ever did at all times, but it talks about how God, through history, has brought about redemption, culminating in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of His Son. It is how God is, through history, bringing about the fulfillment of His redemptive plans. And so Paul is going to go back into redemptive history and um, show how um, the adoption of the pagan practices of the people that surrounded Israel ultimately proved disastrous because, folks, our nature is to turn from the living God and to worship the creature rather than the creator. So the point of this message today is if the Corinthians continue to make peace with paganism, they too may suffer the same fate as did Israel. In other words, redemptive history has present-day significance. The way Paul structures this passage is he is going to begin with a warning and he's going to end with comfort. I pray that my message today follows a similar outline. We will begin with a warning because that's where Paul begins. And I pray that we would end with a great comfort. Paul is a wonderful pastor. He is a man who can balance out uh, both the challenges and the exhortations and admonitions as well as the comforts and the hope and making sure that his people are not overwhelmed with grief. And so with that, Follow along with me as I read uh, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. This is the word of the living God. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil, as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We, not, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. I want to begin here with Israel's example. As I said, Paul is now going to provide scriptural support for his athletic metaphor. The previous, you can go and listen to it on YouTube, 
Um, the previous message was, uh, was an athletic metaphor. Now Paul is going to provide scriptural support for that athletic metaphor. I want you to note how Paul uses sacramental language to draw a parallel between the ancient Hebrews and the Corinthian Christians. Um, and we're going to spend a little bit of time dealing with that. But Paul basically, before I get into that into detail, there seems to be, there, or there is this parallel between Israel and us. They experienced baptism in the Lord's Supper, and yet it did not immunize them from idolatry. And Paul is saying, don't be ignorant. Be alert. Be aware. Note the, the parallels between uh, our forefathers in the past and us today. They experienced all these things and they still were not immunized from the idolatry that plagued them. So be aware and be alert. I don't want you to be ignorant, my brothers. Isn't it interesting that he calls the Corinthians his brothers? Because this is a messed up church. And yet, Paul is saying, my brothers, my sisters, we are... I am not casting you aside. I am not relegating you to the realm of unbelievers. I understand that you are brothers and sisters in Christ. You got, a, you got some sanctifying work to get done in you, but you're brothers and sisters. So I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant, my brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Let me pause for just a moment because it's really easy to overlook this statement, our forefathers. Alex has been teaching us in the Bible study on Sunday mornings. Uh, we're going through a, a lesson on how to uh, interpret and understand the Bible. And this would be one of those questions that would, we would have to ask ourselves, who's Paul's audience? He says, our forefathers, you would think by that Paul's audience would be completely 100% Jewish, but it's not. It's both Jew and Gentile, and yet he ascribes this idea. He says, our forefathers, not just to the Jews, the, the, the people who came out of Egypt weren't just the forefathers of the Jews. They were forefathers, Paul is saying, of even the Gentiles. Paul is recognizing that there is this continuity between the covenant people of God in the Old Testament and the church in the New, that there is this continuity. And sometimes when we, we talk about this, I know that there are people who read the Bible and see this very strict discontinuity between Old and New Testament. There's the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God, and they are two separate things. But Paul seems to draw this parallel. Remember, the Bible is a single story. It is one story. It is not 66 different stories. There, by the way, there are 66 books in the Bible. It's not 66 separate stories. It is one story. And sometimes the way we see this continuity, we might refer to it as promise to fulfillment or shadow to substance or seed to bloom, or type to anti-type. And Paul is saying, our fathers, our forefathers, um, uh, experienced all of these, these, well, he's going to say that they were baptized into Moses, 
And they ate and they drank of the spiritual food that God had provided. This is sacramental language. All were under the cloud. All, by the way, you should note how often all is referenced five times in these few verses. That is, they were all under the cloud, and you recall that this this cloud was the visible presence of God leading his people. He is leading them, guiding them, directing them. He is ever-present with them. All of our fathers, our fathers were under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses. Certainly we see this baptismal and Lord's Supper language being used. They were baptized into Moses as they passed unscathed through the waters of judgment. Moses, as the mediator of the covenant, represents the people of God. And in this sense, he serves as a, quote, type of Christ's work. And they were identified with Moses as the believer is identified with Christ. This, quote, baptism separated the people from the, the pagan clutches of Pharaoh. This was the beginning of their separation from Egypt and their new identity as God's covenant community. And we were all, all of our fathers were baptized into Moses and they ate the spiritual food and the spiritual drink that is referring to the manna, the bread that came from heaven and the the water that was miraculously supplied for the giving of life. So in Paul's mind, the metaphor he's using, he's not, I don't want to push this this metaphor too far. But in a sense, the Hebrews partook of the Lord's Supper and partook of baptism. And then Paul describes this. He says, and they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink. Drink, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Was Christ. Well, that's an interesting statement. They all ate and drank the same spiritual food and they all drank from the same spiritual rock and the rock was Christ and the rock followed them. So did the rock actually follow them? There are some very ancient Jewish scholars who would say that this was like a movable well that kind of went along with them and I, I, I don't agree with that, with that, but it's out there. So in what way then did the did the rock follow them? I'm going to, I think for me, the most convincing way is let's look at this rock. You recall that the water flowed out of this, this rock twice in the history of Israel. Once at the beginning of their journey, right? They came out of Egypt and at the waters of Meribah, um, Moses was commanded, strike the rock and water will flow. They're all griping and complaining. Yeah, you just led us through the, the Red Sea. We saw it parted. That was pretty cool. But now we're starving and we're dying of thirst. And God, you must be evil. You brought us out here to die. So strike the rock at the beginning of their journey. The next time we, we see it is at the end of their journey. Forty years later. And Moses is told to speak to the rock, but he strikes it twice. Nevertheless, and I'm not going to get into that. You can go back. We, we preached through the book of Numbers a while back. You can go look at that sermon. It's on YouTube and it's on sermon audio and it's all, it's available. I'll be happy to give you the notes if you need them. But the second time then that, um, was that the rock 
provided water, flowing water, living water, if you will, was at the end of their journey. Now, here's the thing we, we want to think about. Is that the only two times that God provided water for the people uh, of Israel in the wilderness? And, of course, the answer is no. Um, God provided for them constantly throughout um, between these two events. I think the main point here is that Christ is the fount of living water and that water was ever present with them. That is, that the recurring gifts of Christ never departed. God sustained his people. I do think it's interesting how Paul points to the pre-existence of Christ by using a term normally ascribed to Yahweh in the Old Testament. If you go back and you look at numbers and you look to see who provided the water... It would be God, the Father. But here, Paul is saying Christ is the one. So Paul ascribes the name of Christ, the works of Christ, to um, God, which confirms the truth of the divinity of Christ. But Paul goes on and says, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and they were destroyed. So, uh, just a quick summary. I didn't want to spend a huge amount of time here uh, with that particular section. But by use of this metaphorical language, Paul demonstrates that all Israel experienced the external rights of our faith. And yet, they were insufficient to rescue them from their idolatrous hearts. Ultimately, they experienced God's just judgment. All these external blessings did not keep the people of God from engaging in rebellion. The people died in the wilderness despite these signs. The miracles that were mentioned in verses 1 and 2 were insufficient to change their hearts. So in regards to our text and Paul's point, perhaps associating with idols is detrimental to running the race that participation in pagan rituals and Christian rites are incompatible and may ultimately result in destruction. Remember your history. So I think that's where Paul's going. And now Paul is going to say, let me give you some specific examples of how, despite all of these external signs, in spite of all of these incredible miracles, The people of God still embraced the paganism of the cultures around them, and as a result, they were destroyed. So Paul says the standard, listen, these guys had every blessing you could think of, and they still embraced the paganism of 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 their surrounding neighbors, and as a result, God was not pleased. So learn from redemptive history. Paul will, will get there. You hanging in there so far? All right. Here we go. So now let's talk a little bit about in the wilderness of uh, what's going on here. And Paul gives, um, Paul is going to, reminding the Corinthians of this sad episode, Paul is going to assert that this is not just some history lesson, but rather, like the Israelites who enjoyed the same covenant signs, baptism and the Lord's Supper, 
Only now in their fullness, the Corinthians should take note of the incompatibility of idolatry and the Christian faith. So they've enjoyed the same covenant signs as you do. You're experiencing them in their fullness. Remember, um, promise to fulfillment, seed to bloom, that type of thing. You've experienced them in their fullness. They didn't, and they fell. You, having experienced them in their fullness, should be in even have greater awareness of the incompatibility of idolatry and the Christian faith. Then Paul says, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So um, these are examples. Do not desire evil as your fathers did. The rebellious fathers were destroyed as a testimony. Take heed. He gives these four warnings. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play. The first one is, the first warning is, we should not be idolaters as our fathers were, who sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. This passage, this reference comes from Exodus chapter 32, verse 6, but you can also read uh, verse 8, 31, and 35 to help. Eating and drinking was associated with the idol worship and it degenerated into debauchery. This is the the golden calf incident by, just to help us remember, this is where the people, Moses had gone up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, the tablets, and he took too long, and the people said, well, we don't know what happened to him. And Aaron, the high priest, says, listen, everybody, give me your gold earrings and your rings and all of your gold stuff. And, and then he fashioned a, a cow, a bull, a golden calf. And this is what he said. This, Israel, is Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He is not saying, don't go worship some... He is not saying, go worship some foreign god. This is not a god of Egypt. He is saying, this is Yahweh, your god. He is ascribing... um, He is commanding or encouraging the people to worship Yahweh in a false way. This is idolatry. Worshiping the true God in the wrong way. Making an image, an icon, if you will, out of the God of glory. And they began to eat and drink. And this is kind of Paul's point. And that is you're eating and drinking in the presence of of idols. And it leads to debauchery where it says that they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. There is sexual connotation to that statement. Basically, the cultic worship was eat, get drunk, and... Yeah, a little bit of debauchery. Not a little bit, a lot of debauchery. So this idolatry included a cultic meal just as it did in the Corinthian temples. This is Paul's parallel. Stephen Oom in his commentary writes this. He says, Idolatry happens beneath the level of action. It happens on the level of appetite and desire. Whenever we take a created thing and put it to use in such a way as to meet a need or fulfill a desire that only the creator can ultimately fulfill, we are committing idolatry. 
Don't be idolaters as some of them were. That's the first warning. The, sexual warn- the second warning is that we might not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. This is um, found in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. This is perhaps one of the most seductive events and enticements uh, for Israel to sin against their God. Let me give you a reminder of what's going on in Numbers chapter 25. So Israel, a big group of people has come out of Egypt and they're traveling through the the wilderness and coming into the promised land. Now, if you were a king or a ruler of a particular country in that area and an army of millions of people is approaching your border, you would get a little bit nervous. You're thinking, they're going to destroy us. So one of the pagan kings that Israel was uh, coming near to. His name was Balak. He was the king of Moab. And he said, well, listen, we've got a threat on our hands. We've got some, some foreigners coming in and they could easily overwhelm us. We need to fight back. So what Balak, the king of Moab, does is he hires a prophet to curse Israel. Now, just to kind of put it this way, This would have been the ancient form of a weapon of mass destruction. All right, so how am I going to defeat them? Well, there's there's too many. We We can't beat them. There's just too many of them. We can't overwhelm them militarily. What we need is we need a weapon of mass destruction, and that would be a prophet to come along and curse the people of Israel. And by doing so, The divine will be on our side and we will be able to have a victory. So he hires a guy by the name of Balaam and Balaam comes in. And Balaam can't curse Israel. In fact, he does just the opposite. He blesses Israel. He gets up there and Balak says, curse Israel. And he says, oh, Israel's the greatest nation in the whole world. God's with them. God loves them. And of course, the king gets mad and says, wait a second. I didn't hire you to do this. I paid you good money. And the money I paid you was to curse them, and now you're blessing them. And Balaam says, listen, I can, only, I can only do what and say what God has called me to say, and all I can do is bless them. They're God's people. I can't curse them. If that were the end of the story, that would be the end of the story. But it's not. Balaam says, I can't curse them. But here's what I can do. I can show you how to entice them into a sin so that God himself will curse them. I can't do it, but if they sin against their God, God will justly judge them. So here's what he tells Balak, the king of Moab, to do. He says, here's what you do. Get some of the young women in your nation and have them go and enter into the camp of the Israelites, bring some food, bring some drink, and the men of Israel will uh, join together with uh, the young ladies of Moab. They will, of course, be enticed sexually. Um, They will eat and drink, and they will adopt the the pagan gods 
of your city. And when that happens, God will curse them. This was the sin at Baal Peor. It was very seductive, and it brought God's just judgment. Folks, there is a direct connection between paganism, idolatry, and sexual immorality. So Paul is saying, don't be idolaters, as some of them were, and many died. Don't be sexually immoral, as some of them were, and many died. And then he says, and don't put Christ to the test. This is the third warning. This is found in Numbers chapter 21, verses 5 through 6. There's an error in your notes. I put 24, 1 through 9. You can read that. It's good. It's just not connected to the passage I'm talking about here. 21, verses 5 through 6 will be uh, much less confusing if you read that. And this is where they put Christ to the test. Interesting that, again, Paul inserts the person of Christ here. They grew weary of the spiritual food and drink, and they became dissatisfied with God's provision. God had faithfully provided for them. God had faithfully given them the bread from heaven and faithfully given them the living water of life that sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness, and they grew weary. They said, we loathe God's blessings. We hate all the things that's become so weary All of the great things that God has done, we're so weary of it. I wish he would give us something else. I wish he would give me what we really, really want. They grew weary of the spiritual food and drink. They became dissatisfied with God's provision. They preferred the bounty of Egypt and they conspired to cast off the divine provision and return to their bondage. This was they actually begin to say that Egypt is the promised land and Pharaoh is a much more benevolent king than God Almighty. Do not put Christ to the test. Basically, they are saying we are weary with all the blessings that God has given us out here in this wilderness. And God was displeased and they fell. It's interesting here, because the way they died in the wilderness was God sent serpents into their midst. And they began to, of course, bite and poison the Israelites. And God told Moses the remedy for this is to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and lift it up, and everybody who looks upon the serpent will live. This is an important, this is maybe one of the key passages in the Bible because Jesus uses this very same uh, example to speak of his work. He said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that all who look upon him in faith will be saved. And so, do not... Be idolaters as some of them were and do not be sexually immoral as some of them were and do not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And finally, do not grumble as many of them did. And in your notes, I put too many references to lists. Just read the book of Numbers. I fill three pages with their examples of grumbling. So, when the people grumbled, they faced God's judgment. They considered God cruel and unloving and said, we ought to return to Pharaoh. Yeah, he's remember all the fish and the great vegetables we had? 
Um, by the way, they were slaves. Um, the opposite of grumbling is gratitude, to be satisfied with God's provision. The Corinthians were guilty of being unsatisfied with the gospel. They were unsatisfied with a crucified Savior. They wanted more. And let me ask ourselves, does, could this describe us being unsatisfied with the gospel, being unsatisfied with the provisions that God has so mercifully and graciously provided for us? Paul then goes on and he says, there's these four examples. Now these things in verse 11 happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not just giving you a recounting of ancient events that happened a long, long time ago that are somehow unconnected with the present. Rather, what I'm saying is these things happened as an example. They are written down to instruct us about something. They should teach us something. Learn from your fathers. Learn from your history. David Garland in his commentary writes this, They have blithely ignored the warning siren blaring from the biblical accounts of Israel's chronic idolatry and terrifying punishment if the wilderness generation met such a horrifying end by spurning a concealed Christ who nurtured them through their journey. How much more the Corinthians will be condemned if they spurn the revealed Christ? So learn from them. Upon, and he says, upon us whom the end of the ages has come. I probably have a lot to say about this, but I'm going to abbreviate it greatly. Basically, this idea of upon whom the end of the ages has come, I think is a, a, a reference to the fact that redemptive history, which I described earlier, has reached its end. It's reached its terminus. It's reached its goal. Jesus is the one upon whom redemptive history centers. All those events pointed towards what has been fulfilled. Promise, I'm sorry, promise has become fulfillment. Seed has become bloom. Shadow has become substance. Um, Type has become anti-type. God has faithfully brought his plans to pass. And they are fulfilled in the person of Christ. I know this because Jesus said it himself in Luke chapter 24 and in John chapter 5 that he is the culmination of all of the Old Testament prophets or all of the Old Testament um, promises. They are fulfilled in him. Redemptive history has reached its terminus, has reached its goal. We are that generation. And now Paul tells us, take heed. Therefore, let, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I guess maybe the easiest way to put this is that we are not as strong as we think. Our natural tendency is a gradual drift from God. Self-confidence is to be tempered with, ca- with caution. Are we more influenced by the wisdom of the age than we are by the word of God? Because if we are careless or we are um, unobservant or we wane in our diligence, we will drift from the things of God. 
Both the proud and the careless are susceptible to drifting. Then Paul, so Paul says, you're not as strong as you think you are. But then he provides these words of comfort. Because this has been kind of a harsh message at this point. You know, watch out, watch out, don't do this, don't do that. Then Paul gives these words of comfort. This is Paul being a pastor. Sometimes we forget that Paul was first and foremost a pastor. And a great pastor. And he says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the temptations that you're facing are common to all men. Specifically here would be the allurement of idolatry and the scorn with which its abandonment occurs. In other words, idolatry um, was, was everywhere. And to spurn and to reject the idolatry of your pagan neighbors would bring reproach upon you. They would think you were a nut job. They, are th- they would think that you are foolish. They would say, how is it that you don't believe in all of these deities and all of these divinities? And how is it that you can trust in some god? Um, there are many gods. And if you don't think so, then you know, the scorn that would be um, placed upon you for rejecting the worldview of your pagan neighbors was real and palatable. Paul is saying, this allurement of idolatry and the scorn with which its abandonment occurs is common. The Corinthians are not under some unique form of trial. Such matters are common. In other words, folks, my friends, brothers and sisters, to be identified with Christ is to be identified with the scorn that comes upon the people of God. Don't believe me. Make a bold statement for God. Make a bold statement for a Christian worldview and you will be you will face the scorn of your pagan neighbors. <clears throat> you Nazi scum, you hateful individual, how dare you come against our worldview? That is the scorn that comes with spurning the idolatry of a pagan culture. Paul is saying, This is not unusual. And then he says God is faithful. That is that God provides the resources we need and God limits, sets a limit on temptation. God is the one who provides what we need and he sets a limit on it so that we can endure. Folks, our Lord knows our struggles. He knows our struggles. He knows our fears, our temptations. He knows our difficulties. He knows our weaknesses. He knows the idols of our hearts. They're real. And the escape is, or the exit is not some escape hatch that necessarily removes the trial, but God provides the resources necessary to victoriously endure and overcome. Folks, as I said, we are not as strong as we think we are, but God is much stronger than we think He is. Fall on Christ. He has the resources we need to endure 
and he has set a limit on our temptations. So I'll conclude here. Just as God called Israel out of Egypt and provided them with the means of grace, so God has done so for us as well. The benefits that were enjoyed by the Hebrews in type and in shadow pointed forward to the realities that are now fulfilled in Christ. And we, as the people of Christ, enjoy those benefits. So Christ has given us the benefits, the means of grace. This is some of the means of grace, the way that God strengthens his people course through through God through the reading of God's word the proclamation of his word and prayer and fasting base, basic spiritual disciplines and the gathering together of God's people on on the Lord's day is a means of grace it's a way that we strengthen one another and are strengthened we enjoy the table of the Lord this is one of the ways that God nourishes his people I was hiking this weekend, and Friday was a hard day. And when things get hard and I don't have much further to go, my tendency is just to keep pushing. Just keep going. You only got a couple more miles. Just go, 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 go. Just get it done. <clears throat> Instead, I, I sat for five minutes and had a snack. Snacks are good. So it was a five-minute break. I got up and kept going. And it wasn't so bad. And I wasn't weary. I, I consider when we gather, this is just a short time of our week, a five-minute break when we gather together. But here we're nourished. Here we rest. Here we feed upon God and his, and, and, and his resources that he has blessed us with fellowship with one another, the singing, corporate singing. We worship together. We hear our brothers and sisters. We pray together. We say amen together. We pray for people's babies and we pray for families and we, and we love one another and we hear God's work. It's a five-minute respite. You're weary and you're broken. You're saying, gosh, when's this going to end? And then five minutes and a pretty good snack and things aren't so bad. God has given us a means of grace. All kinds of... And throughout the week, he's given you his word. He's given you brothers and sisters. Call one another. Text one another. Email one another. Let people know that... Share a scripture. You know, what would I say to so-and-so? Don't say anything. You got a 66 books in here with a whole bunch of... I don't know how many verses. Share an encouraging one. Christ remains our rock. Just as they had the rock following them, Christ remains our rock. He remains our bread of life and he continues to be the fount of living water. Remember that. Israel came under God's judgment as an example that God will not share his glory with idols. Let me repeat that. Israel came under God's judgment as an example that God will not share his glory with idols. Christ has purchased us with his blood and he will not share us with occult practitioners like astrologers, spirit guides, tarot cards, or whatever. False religions. He will not share us with heretical sects and he will not share us with popular religious fakes. 
We belong to Christ. We are his bride. He will limit our temptations. He will use them as a means to grow us and beautify us until he comes again. We are the bride of Christ. He will share us with none other. Father, we come before you this day and we give you praise and we give you thanks and we remember all that you've done. Nourish us this day. Give us a break, a little five-minute respite here, Lord God, and let us go out and be, be sustained again as you take us to our destination, as you take us and bring us into your glory and let us realize, Lord God, that you share us with nobody. We are exclusive. We are yours and you are ours. What a beautiful thought that is. What a beautiful truth that is. So help us, Lord God, to abandon those things that might cause us to drop out of the race and follow diligently after you. These things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's go ahead. Let's stand. We'll